Well, good morning. I'm glad to be able to be here, at least uh, by using this technology and being uh, being on the wall here in the church. I wish I could have been here with you all, but uh, again, we're thankful for the technology that we have that I can actually still preach to you while I'm not here. And I do thank you for the prayers for, for Lynn and for my family. We definitely have been feeling it this week. If you would please open your Bibles to the book of Leviticus, chapter 10, and if you're uh, using the Pew Bible, that's found on page 88, 88 of the Pew Bible, Leviticus chapter 10. And originally I had intended to preach this sermon tonight uh, during our evening service. This was the text that came up for our reading of the law. And as you know, for the morning, we had planned to do the ordination service for Ben and, and for Alex. Uh, that's what our plan was for this morning. But you know the old saying, how do you make God laugh? You tell him about your plans. Well, God obviously had different plans for this morning. But I really wanted to preach this chapter in Leviticus because this is a very difficult chapter. It's difficult not really to understand what it's saying. That's actually very clear. The difficulty is in what it actually says. The difficulty with this chapter is the side of God that it shows. And it's a side that we really don't want to consider. And if we're honest, it's a side of God that we would prefer not to look at. We would prefer not to even look at this chapter. But as you know, all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is useful. All scripture is profitable for us, for the church. And it is, I find, sometimes in the most difficult passages that provide the richest richest rewards for us. And I pray that that is true for us today. So Leviticus chapter 10. Brothers and sisters, hear now the word of the living God. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, Do not let the hair of your heads hang loose, and do not tear your clothes, lest you die, and wrath come upon you all, upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean. 
And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. Moses spoke to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his surviving sons, take the grain offering that is left of the Lord's food offering and eat it unleavened beside the altar, for it is holy. You shall eat it in a holy place because it is your due and your son's due from the Lord's food offerings. For so I am commanded. But the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed, you shall eat in a clean place, you and your sons and your daughters with you. For they are given as your due and your sons due from the sacrifice of the peace offerings of the people of Israel. The thigh that is contributed and the breast that is waved, they shall bring with the food offerings of the fat pieces to wave for a wave offering before the Lord. And it shall be yours and your sons with you as a due forever, as the Lord has commanded. Now Moses diligently inquired about the goat of the sin offering. And behold, it was burned up. And he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, the surviving sons of Aaron, saying, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in the place of the sanctuary, since it is a thing most holy and has been given to you that you may bear the iniquity of the congregation to make atonement for them before the Lord? Behold, its blood was not brought into the inner part of the sanctuary. You certainly ought to have eaten in the sanctuary as I commanded. And Aaron said to Moses, Behold, today they have offered their sin offering, and their burnt offering before the Lord. And yet such things as these have happened to me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would the Lord have approved? And when Moses heard that, he approved. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I do pray for your spirit to be with me. Lord, I pray that I will speak your words. Lord, that we will have an encounter with you. Lord, I pray for each one in the congregation. I know this is not ideal, watching a projection of their pastor. But Father, I pray that your spirit will still be upon and bless the reading and the preaching of your word, that you will open our hearts, open our minds to hear from you, to have an encounter with you that will change us, each one of us, more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Well, this text in Leviticus, this text troubles us. We really don't know what to make of it. If we're honest, it seems like God is out of control in this text. He seems to be completely to overreact, to blow things out of proportion, to an honest mistake made by these priests. See, there's no warning. There's no correction. There's no, you know, you know I'd prefer that you didn't do it this way. I prefer that you stick with the script. No. Nadab and Abihu make a mistake and bam, God takes them out unmercifully takes them out. And this chapter scares us. We know that God doesn't change. We're not like the liberals who say that was, a, that was the angry Old Testament God, but in the New Testament, we have a kinder, a gentler God. And we worry. We worry. Could God react this way today? Could he react this way with us? Especially when you consider the irreverent and the blasphemous way God is worshipped in many evangelical churches today, even in churches in our own denomination. And this passage is very important. This passage gets our attention. But not only does it show God's holiness, I think it also shows God's mercy. 
In our gospel reading for this morning, in Luke 12, verses 47 and 48, Jesus says, And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved the beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. You see, Nadab and Abihu, they were given much. Along with their father, Aaron, and their uncle, Moses, these were the spiritual leaders of God's people. They were the priests. They were the ones who were responsible to carry out the sacrifices for God's people. They were responsible to instruct and to train God's people about the holiness of God. They were to communicate the awesome holiness of their God and instruct the people how they may have communion with this holy and mighty God, how they can serve this awesome God. And this was an extremely important task, a task that they were equipped to do, a task for which they had received training and instruction from Moses and from Aaron, but ultimately from God himself. And the entire book of Leviticus, which we have been studying in our evening services and what we've been studying also in our Sunday schools in the morning, this book of Leviticus is a manual for worship. Its primary function is to instruct the priests and and by extension all of God's people how they may approach a holy God, how they may worship God. And Nadab and Abihu, they were high priests. They were the senior leadership of God's people. And they knew this manual. They knew it very well. And not only had they been given these written instructions, they were explicitly shown by Aaron what faithful sacrifices and what faithful worship looked like. And we see this in the immediately preceding chapter. And if you would in your Bibles, just look back one chapter to to, uh, Leviticus chapter 9. And in this chapter, we see Moses and Aaron and his sons, Nadab and Abihu, along with all the elders of Israel. They are gathered together, and Aaron is given step-by-step instructions on how to offer the sacrifice. Aaron is told what to do. Aaron is told what to say in this chapter. And then we see the Lord's acceptance of the sacrifice that Aaron offered. At the end of of chapter 9, in verse 23, we see the glory of the Lord appear to all the people. And then in verse 24, fire came out from the Lord and consumed the sacrifice, showing that it was acceptable to the Lord. And then the reaction of the people, the people fell down on their face and they worshipped the Lord. Then we have this very next chapter, chapter 10. Nadab and Abihu, they attempt to make an offering to the Lord and it goes very, very differently. Verse 1 says that they each took a censer and they put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire, or strange fire, some translations say, before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Now, we don't know exactly what this strange fire is. We don't know what it might be. But what we do know was clearly something not commanded by the Lord. And what they did is they took the initiative. They offered something that came from themselves, not something that came from the Lord, not something the Lord instructed them to give. Now, some suspect that the sin committed by Nadab and Abihu was that they came before the Lord drunk. 
they, they, and, and they get this from the command given in verse 9, which says, drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. Now, this is possible. They may have come in drunk, but I don't, I don't know if that's really necessary to, to, to go there. I think there's an even deeper meaning here to verse 9. And that hits at the heart of their sin. I believe that this command requires a seriousness, a soberness, whether it's sober from not drinking or just sober in preparing your heart to come before the Lord. There's a seriousness and a soberness required when coming before the Lord, when approaching the Lord. And we're not told, or I should say, we're not told to come into his, his presence hastily. We're not to come into his presence without uh, regard for who he is. The Lord is holy. He is, he is extremely holy. And, and for the priests, especially true for the priests, they need to take God seriously. They need to understand whose presence they are coming into. And it's important to understand the symbolism in this act. See, God is holy. We are not. And what this means is that there is nothing Nothing in us that entitles us to come into God's presence. Any communion that we can have as fallen, as sinful, as finite men that we can have with, with the holy God, with the perfect God, with the infinite God, it must be initiated by God, not by man. It must be initiated by God himself. And this is why it's essential for the priest to follow God's instruction for how he is to be worshipped. See, God reaches to us. He reaches down to us. We don't reach out to God. And that's what the strange fire, whatever it was, was man's attempt to reach up to God, to, 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 to make the way. The man is going to make the way himself to reach up to God, all the while neglecting, neglecting the gracious means that God has already provided, how to come into his presence, provided to them through his word, through his law. In the reality, as fallen sinful man, that we would be immediately destroyed. Immediately destroyed if we come unmediated into the presence of a holy God. And this is what happened when Nadab and Abihu offered their unauthorized fire. In one sense, their destruction is not so much an act of, of God's active judgment against them, but rather it is just a natural reaction, a natural consequence of their foolish action, of coming into God's presence unprotected. It's kind of like, say, if you were a, a, an electrician and you came before a high voltage wire, it was a high voltage wire that wasn't insulated, and you decided to touch it. What do you think would happen? You'd be immediately fried because you touched this high voltage wire. Well, it's the same thing. The natural consequences of us coming into God's presence without being covered by a mediator, we would be ultimately destroyed. And notice that they're not only instantly killed, but Moses instructs that the bodies be taken outside of the camp. So what does this mean? Well, out of the camp is the place which is unclean. This is where the unclean people are. This, is, this symbolizes Really, the eternal judgment, the eternal separation from a holy God, from the holy people that is happening because of this act. Jesus, in his parable about the wedding feast, 
If you remember the parable, he comes before a man who's invited to this wedding feast. Uh, he doesn't have to bring anything, but he's not wearing the wedding coat. Now, if you remember, if you, if you studied that parable, this wedding coat was provided for the guests. It was to show honor to the bridegroom, honor to the host. But this person who came refused to wear this wedding coat that was provided for. And you remember what happened? The master had him taken and thrown out of the banquet. And it says thrown into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And what this symbolizes is eternal destruction. He was turned, he had eternal judgment for him. He was sent out to where there is uh, eternal weeping and gnashing of teeth. Another, another uh, illustration to this, uh, think about an astronaut. Say an astronaut wanted to do a, a spacewalk, and he went on a spacewalk without wearing his spacesuit. What would happen to an astronaut who has you know, regular normal pressure inside his body, and he goes out into the vacuum of space without a, the protection of his spacesuit? He would immediately explode. Again, that's the same thing. If we're unprotected, if we come into if we come into the Lord's presence without, without the protection of a mediator before the Holy God. Another important thing for us to note here is Moses and Aaron's reaction to this immediate judgment. Remember, these are Aaron's oldest sons. These are Moses' nephews. These are fellow uh, leaders, members of Israel's senior leadership. And look, at they had been just been killed. They had just been banished outside the camp, which means they've been eternally damned. Look at their reaction in verse 3. So Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glory, glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Aaron held his peace. See, obviously Aaron was shocked Obviously, Aaron was troubled by the death and the the rejection of his sons, but Aaron held his peace. Aaron knew God was right. Aaron knew God was just. He knew his sons really, in reality, got what they deserved. And Moses and Aaron knew that this judgment brought God glory. And as God said through Moses, among those who are near to me, that is the priests, those who offer the sacrifices. He says, I will be sanctified. That means I will be treated as holy. I will be treated as set apart. I will be sanctified. Not common, not profane. But for all the peoples, I will be glorified. And God's judgment of those near to him, those who do not treat him as holy, those who profane his name, this brings Glory to God among the people. The people see God's holy nature. They see his holiness in this judgment. And here's a very important point, and one that, humanly speaking, emotionally speaking, is is extremely difficult for us to accept. And that is for the man of God, in this case Moses and Aaron, or for the mature Christian, and in reality for every single follower of Christ. God's glory is more important to us than even the physical and spiritual well-being of those closest to us. And this is hard to accept. This is so hard to accept. God's glory is more important to us 
than even the physical and spiritual well-being of those closest to us. Now, what this is not saying, this is, this is not saying that we want to see God reject our loved ones so that God's glorified. No, not at all. Our deepest desire, our deepest prayer is for those loved ones to submit to God, to love God, to come to him, to become new creations in Christ. And we plead, we plead with Lord, we plead with them with every ounce of our strength. But if they refuse, if they refuse God's grace, what this passage teaches us is we are to hold our peace. Hold our peace, which means we are not to criticize God's judgment. We are not to reject God's standard as proclaimed in his word. Our love for our child, our love for our spouse, our love for our parents or brother is not to be so much that we side with the loved one against God. And sadly, sadly, we see this often among Christians. Their love for their, love for their lost loved one drives them to reject God, drives them to choose the loved one over the clear teaching of God in his word. And God will not take second place to anything. And what we're doing is making an idol out of the loved one. And God will take that idol away from us. And we see this idol idolatry clearly today in many Christians. Even pastors who will, will do a 180 degree uh, on their support of the biblical teaching on sexual ethics and sexual morality. Why? Why do they make this 180 degree change? Because they have a son or a daughter who comes out as gay. And at this point, they choose their child before God. They say, well, if my child is gay, well, maybe, maybe I didn't understand God's word. Maybe it changes. And they change what it means because of the love they have for this loved one. I had a coworker when I was working in Virginia who, who I believe was an evangelical Christian. She went to a conservative church. And, and we seemed really to be on the same page theologically on many on many issues. And I had kept in touch with this person through Facebook. And I, I noticed about a year ago that she started posting things that were very contrary to a biblical understanding of sexual uh, morality. They were very pro-transgender in their ideology, almost like, almost like she was taking the talking points from this ideology. And I, had, uh, and I knew that this was diametrically opposed to the faith that she professed. And I had tried pushing back on some of her posts, which she never, never engaged with, never answered at all. And then I looked for her profile, and I saw that one of her sons had come out as transgender shortly before. So now that explains the completely change in her biblical ethic or rejection of the biblical ethic. Jesus said in Matthew 10:37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. My friends, it does not get any clearer than that. Jesus must come first. If we reject God's commands to affirm the sin of a loved one, we're not worthy of Christ. It is a salvation issue to be as blunt as possible. If we side with the loved one, whether it's a child, whether it's a spouse, whether it is a brother or a parent, if we side with them in their rebellion against God, we too are in rebellion against God. It is a salvation 
issue. Many of you know the well-known pastor, John Piper. And you may not, you may be surprised to hear that he actually has a son who is an atheist. And not only is he an atheist, he's an outspoken atheist. He makes videos and posts videos on YouTube that are blasphemous, that are profane, profaning the faith that his father faithfully uh, uh, preaches and his upbringing. And John Piper had to excommunicate his own son. When he was 19 years old, he excommunicated him from their church. And I can't even imagine how horrible this must have been. As a father, as a parent, this type of rejection of God, this breaks our heart. And we would plead with God to to change the child, to bring this child to faith. But we would not pray that God changes his mind about the sin of the child. We don't say, God, make that not be sinful because this person is not going to change their mind. See, as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, as a person who loves Christ more than we love life itself, the attitude of this unbeliever, even if it is a, even if it is a loved one, this attitude, this blasphemy that we see, it infuriates us. God's honor is at stake. We can't stand it. We can't see blasphemy against the beautiful Savior. It must be punished. It cannot be allowed to go unchallenged. And we pray. We pray that the loved one will come to himself, like the prodigal son, come to himself and repent. But if they will not, God still must be glorified. And willful, outright rebellion against God must be punished. And I think this is exactly why Moses gives the explicit instruction to Aaron and to his two sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, in verse 6 and 7, not to mourn for their brothers. See, as priests, they are to so identify with God. They are to so desire to see God glorified that they don't mourn God's right and just judgment. Even when that judgment is against God, their own family members, their own sons or their own brothers, to whom much is given. And that is those who are called to spiritual leaders, called to minister in the presence of God. To them, much is required. And not only do we see judgment in this passage, we also see great mercy. While the priests were forbidden to mourn, the people were allowed to mourn. We see this at the end of verse 6. It says, but let your brothers the whole house of Israel bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. And the people were to mourn, not that God had judged these men, but rather that they, they were to mourn the sin that was committed, that led to the judgment. But either way, the people of Israel, even though they, they were set apart for God, set apart to be holy, they are not held to the same standard standards that the priests were as those who had been given so much privilege, so much knowledge, the ones who were responsible for teaching God's people. The New Testament tells us not many should aspire to be teachers because they are held to a higher standard. And as we read through this sobering account of of God's holy judgment, and while it is is meant to to really to startle us, to, to get our attention, It's meant to make us seriously consider God's holiness and how we should enter God's presence. If we're not careful, it could lead to paralyzing fear. We may be so overwhelmed by the complexities of the ceremonial law, of the Levitical codes, 
that were terrified of, of making even the tiniest mistake and bring down God's wrath. But the last part of this chapter shows us God's grace. It shows us that God is not a nitpicky legalist who, who is looking to spite his people just for the, if they transgress the smallest commandment. See, God looks the heart. God takes into account the intentions of his people. In verses 20, or 12 to 20, Moses is very concerned, rightfully so, that Aaron and his surviving sons do not encounter the same fate that Nadab and Abihu did. So he gives them very clear and explicit instructions on the portion of the, the offering that the priests are to eat and what is to be given to the Lord. But Moses is then horrified, horrified that they did not follow his explicit command. Look at verses 16 and 17. It says, Now Moses diligently inquired about the goat of the sin offering, and behold, it was burned up. And he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, the surviving sons of Aaron, saying, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in the place of the sanctuary, since it is the thing most holy and has been given to you? See, Moses is worried about them. He's saying, Guys, don't you understand? This is not a time to fool around. This is a holy God. You're in his presence. You don't show creativity. You do what God instructs. But God is not only concerned with outward conformity, not only concerned with outward obedience. God looks to heart. God looks at the motivation. And Aaron replies in verse 19, says, And Aaron said to Moses, Behold, today they have offered their sin offerings and their burnt offerings before the Lord. And yet such things as these have happened to me. See, he's still affected by what happened to his two older sons. He said, if I had eaten the sin offering today, would the Lord have approved? See, Aaron is affected by what happened. Who, who would blame him? He's terrified of what happened. He's afraid to eat the food. He's afraid to take this on himself. But this mistake that he made, it's not motivated by rebellion. It's not motivated by a disregard of God's holiness. No, on the opposite. He's so concerned with God's holiness, he doesn't even want to eat the food. So we see in verse 20, Moses serving as God's prophet, God's mouthpiece, approves of Aaron's actions. See, here we see God is just like a parent. The parent is not going to harshly punish his child for an unintentional mistake. Nadab and Abihu did not make a mistake. Nadab and Abihu rebelled against God. It's a big difference. They rebelled against God's revealed will, a will they clearly knew, to whom much is given, much is required. So what about us? What is the takeaway for us? What is our application? What do we learn from this very scary passage in Leviticus? Well, first we need to understand that each one of us, each one of us here, each one of us in the church has been given much. We have been given much. We have Scripture. We have the completed canon of Scripture. We have the Bible. So much more revelation than Moses had, or Aaron had, or Nadab and Abihu. But not only that, we have the church. Specifically here at Northgate, we have a 40-plus year tradition of biblical teaching, biblical preaching. We go through the, 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 the Bible verse by verse to teach what it says. 
And beyond that, we have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit convicting us of sins, opening our eyes to what Scripture is teaching, leading us, directing us. And as such, because of all this that's given to us, we are to treat God as God. Treat God as holy. And this means we are to be sober in our approach to him. We are to be reverent in our worship. And two specific ways that we can be reverent in our worship. One is when we receive the Lord's Supper, which we do when we have our evening service, we have do every week here. And the question is, are we prepared? Do we take it serious? Do we realize that this is a means of grace? Do we realize that the, we are meeting with the Lord? The Puritans would actually spend the entire week preparing for the Lord's Supper. They would be examined before they can come to the Lord's Supper by the elders to make sure that they were, they were not hiding sins. They were not living the way they shouldn't. They were not taking the, the sacrament in an unworthy manner and bring judgment upon themselves. See, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, the institution of the Lord's Supper, that some were sick and some even died. And why did they die? Because they were not taking the sacrament in a worthy manner. This should get our attention. This is not the Old Testament. This is the New Testament believers who died, were sick because of the way they treated the Lord's Supper. So that's one way we can keep it reverent, our worship. The second way we look at reverent worship is the regulative principle. And we, what we do the regulative principle in this, pass, in, this, in this church. And this passage shows us the importance of the regulative principle. And it's a, it's a safeguard, really. It's a safeguard against sinful in, innovation in our worship. And sadly, we see so much of this sinful innovation in the evangelical church. And the regulative principle is simply we only worship God in the way that he explicitly tells us in his word. We don't do anything he does not tell us in his word. He knows how we are to worship him. He knows how we are to approach him. And we use his word as our standard, not our own understanding. So elements of worship, as we see in his word, our prayer, our preaching, our confession, our singing, singing scripture songs, not just any songs, reading scripture, giving offerings. We don't see videos or acting or, or debates or discussions or concerts or, or burning incense or, or dancing. These things are not bad in and of themselves, but they do not have a place in worship. They can be used in other venues, in Sunday school or in, in seminars. But on Lord's Day, corporate worship must be governed by God's word and God's word alone. But even this, even this is not the biggest application. The primary application of this passage, the primary application is that we must approach God on God's terms, not on our terms. We must follow the way that God has provided. And ultimately, ultimately there is only one way that God has provided for sinful man to approach God. And that is through Jesus Christ alone. Jesus said in John 14, 6, a verse that I quote often here. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, the Levitical sacrifices, the laws, they were not the ultimate way to approach God. Rather, they were temporary. Rather, they were a temporary pointer, a pointer to the true way, the ultimate way, which is Christ himself. 
And these laws stood as, again, a, a pointer until the fullness of time, till Christ came and, and made the actual atonement on the cross, a real event in space and in time. So in the final analysis, what was the sin of Nadab and Abihu? It was simple. They rejected Christ. They rejected Christ. This was their sin. And it was an informed and a willful rejection of the only means, the only means of reconciliation between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And this is the reason, this is the reason we see this swift and final judgment of God. And you know what? God has not changed. The same fate awaits every single person in all times and all places who rejects Jesus Christ. Now, God is patient. God is long-suffering. And thankfully, thankfully, he has overlooked so much of our rebellion, so much of our rejection of his gracious offer of salvation through the only mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. But this patience is not infinite. At some point, and we do not know when this point is, the time of grace has passed. And at that time, at that day, anyone not resting in Jesus Christ alone, by faith alone, will be finally and eternally rejected by God, just as Nadab and Abihu are. So brothers and sisters, that is why. That is why we must urgently proclaim the gospel. We must call people to faith, must call people to repentance. And we must fervently pray, fervently pray for the lost. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, this passage terrifies us. It shows your holiness. It shows the reality of judgment. Judgment that is facing every single person outside of Christ. And yes, this passage secondary shows us how we are to worship you, how you are pleased to worship. But above all, it shows us, Christ, that we can only come to you covered by the blood of Christ. If we dare come to you uncovered by the blood of our mediator, unmediated, we are worse than, than touching that high-voltage wire and being destroyed. We are worse than going on a spacewalk without a spacesuit and exploding. We cannot cannot survive in your presence because of this. So, Father, I do pray if there are any here, any who hear my voice, either through the live stream or, or listening just on sermon audio in, in, in five or ten years, Lord, if they do not belong to you, Lord, I pray that you will change that. And, Father, I do pray each one of us here have lost loved ones, lost loved ones who scoff at the reality of this truth. Father, we know that we cannot change them, we cannot nag them, but we know that your Holy Spirit can work. And so, Father, we pray that you will work now. You will convict them of their sin. Show them the foolishness of relying on themselves to reach up to God on anything that they can do, how that will ultimately fail them for all eternity and change their hearts while they have time, that they will receive and rest upon Jesus Christ alone as he is offered in the gospel for their salvation. They will fall upon his grace. And we do pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.